Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is an in-depth review of multiple sclerosis, the most common neurological disorder among young adults. Multiple sclerosis, or MS, is an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system, and it's one of the most common conditions that is addressed in the field of neurology. Despite the advances in medicine and the emergence of tools to help with the diagnosis, it is one of the most common conditions that is misdiagnosed because of its highly variable expression and findings. This can create a unique set of issues for patients, and the goal of this podcast episode is to shed light on the advances in our knowledge of MS, bust some myths regarding the management of MS, which unfortunately is quite common in the wellness space, and to recognize that there are medications, therapies, coping strategies, and support groups to help address these problems. If you or anyone you know is experiencing any of these symptoms, it's very important that they speak with a neurologist or a physician or a nurse or call the National MS Society at 1-800-344-4867. This episode was a live recording for our Neuro Academy members. Neuro Academy is a membership-based online environment where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline with a large set of on-demand courses with CE and CME credits and a thriving community. Learn more by visiting neuroacademy.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tanya was a 35-year-old woman, a very active entrepreneur who was always on the move. Then one Sunday morning, she woke up and realized that there was something wrong with her vision. She couldn't see things very well, and it was very blurry. And she also saw two of a single object. She had some double vision. She tried multiple times to close her eyes and reopen them. She even used some droppers to get rid of you know, some potential dryness in the hopes that the blurriness would go away. But it didn't. The symptoms were very mild, uh, but she still went ahead and made an appointment with her doctor for the next, uh, you know, the, in the next few days. When she saw her doctor, the doctor examined her eyes and spoke with her and she was told that it was probably just an eye problem that she shouldn't really worry about. And um, she also gave her a prescription or and a referral to an optometrist to get evaluated and maybe even get some eyeglasses. Sorry guys, I'm getting over a cold and I might cough in the middle, <coughs> like right now, <coughs> excuse me. Over the next few days, the symptoms improved slightly, but they didn't go away completely. She forgot all about the eye exam and went ahead with her busy life. Then about six months later, she all of a sudden felt a numbness in her right leg. And it involved, you know, the entire leg mm -hmm. and it kind of felt like as if it was sleeping, you know, when your leg falls asleep. Uh, you know, at this point, she kind of got very concerned because it didn't go away and it was consistently there. So her husband took her to the emergency room. Um, and when she went to the emergency room, um, they essentially did a neurological workup on her to rule out a stroke. She was examined by the ER physician and then a neurologist. 
They did a neurological examination and they recommended an MRI of the brain. Then while she was in the MRI machine, um, they actually were looking at her brain. And as soon as she was done, she was told that she had lesions in her brain. And now she was very worried and concerned um, when she was brought into the emergency room in the waiting area, the neurologist came to talk to her and said that there were several small lesions in the brain and they were located in her optic nerve, which is the nerve of the eye. And that kind of explained some of the blurriness in the vision problems that she was experiencing earlier on. And they also saw some lesions in the cerebral hemisphere and they felt that the leg weakness was because of these lesions in her brain mm -hmm. and they corroborated it with the MRI. Um, the neurologist said that though they suspected that the given previous history and the exam and the MRI findings, you know, all of that together, it looked like MS or multiple sclerosis, they still had to do some more testing to make sure that it was MS and nothing else. Yeah, with MS, they call it the, the great imitator because it's not a common, it, it, yeah, there are some common features. One of the most common initial findings are optic neuritis, which is the inflammation of the optic nerve, one of the optic nerves on, on, on rare occasions, both optic nerves, but then it can manifest anywhere in the body. Right. And it doesn't fit a pattern. You can have a numbness on one end and, and a weakness on the other end. Usually with neurology, it's like electronics because you, you can basically tell where the lesion is because there's a sensory numbness here as, as, and then there's a weakness here. You know the lesion is the, in the spinal cord here or in the brain here because of the connections. But with MS, it can hit multiple spots so it doesn't fit a pattern. Right. And that usually tells you something. Another one, uh, great imitator is diabetes and its uh, findings, but especially MS. So in this case, the optic neuritis and then the leg weakness over time, it's usually how we see this. It's yeah. uh, different symptoms across time and space. And it's a kind of symptoms that the, the general practitioner or a community doctor wouldn't recognize. Right. They would think it's either it's a fake symptom or it's it's uh, just that they're they're imagining or it's just a neuropathy but actually when you look at the history over time it fits the patterns the uh, the unusual patterns of ms that's correct yes and that's a that's a lesson learned here when it comes to ms that's true that's true yes and so the um, emergency doctor and the neurologist suggested that she go through a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap so that they could get a sample <clears throat> of her cerebrospinal fluid and look for certain things. And Tanya, you know, that, that's a pretty invasive procedure, you know, putting in a needle in somebody's um, Lower you know, spinal space uh, to get some fluid out. It's very painful too. So she wanted to know how confident they would be um, to diagnose MS if they had that. And the doctor explained that sometimes, like Dean was just mentioning earlier, that you know, these lesions, these white matter diseases can be seen in other problems too, like mm -hmm. in strokes or diabetes and some other autoimmune diseases. And in order to differentiate MS from others, they actually look at some proteins and some um, antigens and antibodies, mm -hmm. and it will be able to tell them specifically or with great degree of certainty that this was indeed multiple sclerosis. So they did, and the lumbar puncture, um, you know, came back with findings showing 
um, higher amounts of uh, immunoglobulin G production and a specific marker called oligoclonal bands or OGBs. And uh, she was told that what she was experiencing was uh, an acute phase or an early phase of exacerbation of multiple sclerosis. And it would be important for her to be hospitalized and given high doses of steroids to get that inflammatory stage under control. And um, that she would have to be on some sort of a disease modifying um, mm -hmm. treatment to reduce the recurrence of multiple sclerosis. So at that point, it was confirmed that Tanya had multiple sclerosis. It was a devastating news for her, and especially the fact that she was such an amazingly successful entrepreneur, very busy, had a life, husband, family, everything was going for her. And this was just as if somebody just put the stops in for yeah, her. It, it, it's, a, it's a major, not so much roadblock, but a, a major change in lifestyle because this state, this is a disease that stays with you for the rest of your life. Yeah, there are periods where it subsides and, and becomes dormant, but there's usually recurrences for the great majority. There are rare cases where there's a one-time event, but uh, for a great majority, there's recurrences and progression of the disease. Exactly, yeah. Um, so she was told that the <clears throat> progressive nature of this disease, um, you know, was, was um, in many ways, for the most part, you know, relapsing remitting, which means that there would be periods of remission, but then she would relapse and uh, that medication would reduce the chances of relapse. Uh, but with, you know, these medications and with adjusting her lifestyle, she would function well. And so... In the hospital, she was given several days of steroids and her symptoms started to gradually, um, you know, subside, but not completely. She still had some numbness in her leg and yeah. she still had a little bit of blurriness, although the double vision went away. So she felt better and she was released to go home with some physical therapy and occupational therapy and follow up in the neurologist clinic to discuss long-term medication. Um, since then, you know, she has been able to go back to work and it's been almost four years since that, uh, since that particular relapse. And she has had three other relapses, yeah. almost one every year. And um, often it involves uh, the previous areas, but each time one other area, like for example, the last one, she um, had symptoms in her, in her right hand and then she had a foot drop. So mm -hmm. there were these neurological, focal neurological deficits that she was experiencing depending on where the lesion uh, was. Um, so now, you know, she is functional. She continues to live her life, but despite, um, despite all of that, she still has some limitations and uh, um, she's trying her best. Some of the other symptoms that come along with multiple mm -hmm. sclerosis that she experienced was significant anxiety and depression. <clears throat> it just hit her really badly. Yeah. And she um, she actually had to limit herself from her work, her passion. Um, she was going through some marital issues and she went through a divorce, which was pretty devastating. Um, and at this stage, you know, she's uh, um, basically experiencing some cognitive changes as well, which is kind of common for MS patients, especially the ones that are you know, that have a lot of relapses and uh, um, the ones that, you know, where the medication is not really supporting their immune system. Yeah, yeah. So 
all in all, you know, it's just a battle on a daily it basis. It is. The one interesting, sad but interesting fact is for some of these chronic diseases where the symptoms manifest before they're diagnosed, the symptoms are usually psychological, like frontotemporal lobe dementia. It's a behavioral issues that the family and everybody doesn't recognize as a behavioral disease, but it's already affecting their relationship with the family. And the same thing with MS. So there's a higher rate of divorce. There's a higher rate of chaos in the family. Um, there's a higher rate of depression before it's ever diagnosed. In fact, by a lot of times, by the time it's diagnosed in MS, um, um, you know, much of the chaos has ensued. So knowing about this and knowing that it affects some behavioral issues, some psychological issues, not just MS, but other degenerative diseases, that might be something to ad address at a more public health level. Right. Because I think that it's more common than, than we actually talk about it, That's that true. the psychological issues precede by years in, in Parkinson's. Right. As much as five to 10 years ahead of the initial symptoms, there's depression, there's sleeplessness, there, there are all these issues that affect the family and the patient. The same thing with frontotemporal lobe, as I said. So um, that's an important issue to be aware of. Absolutely. So um, so we're going to talk about all of the questions that Jenny just posted on the chat. How does it start? Is it hereditary? Is it a lifestyle? Uh, do the treatments or the medications help alleviate the symptoms? Tanya was only 35 years old. How is How is this possible? So we're going to talk about all of that. Thank you for the question, Jenny. And this is in the category of white matter diseases. And it's a big category, but MS is the biggest one. Um, so the, the, that's why it's, it's important to speak to this disease and bigger category as well. It's a fascinating disease because yeah. it kind of touches on so many um, criteria, so many, I, I wouldn't call it criteria, but so many categories mm -hmm. of neurological or brain diseases. It's an autoimmune condition, it's inflammatory, it's, it has elements of neurodegeneration it as does. well. Uh, it significantly affects uh, people's uh, neuropsychological status and their psychology, so it comes with a lot of mental health issues as well. Um, uh, as far as definition is concerned, we're, we're gonna start with the <clears> definition. <throat> so we're gonna call it MS and not multiple sclerosis from here on, so MS is a disease of the central nervous system. Now that's very important because there are a lot of diseases of the peripheral nervous system too, right? Even though it, the manifestations are uh, sometimes peripheral, say for example, numbness of the hand or foot drop and things like that, it actually is a disease of the brain and the spinal cord and not the peripheral nervous right. system. Um, and it's essentially an immune attack on, um, on the central nervous system because if it were, on the peripheral system, it would be a completely different disease. Like for example, it would be Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre Guillain syndrome is um, essentially an immune attack on the peripheral nervous system. So that's the distinction between MS and other diseases. Um, in MS, um, the immune system attacks a sheath, you know, a covering um, that connects neurons together. Um, these connections are called axons and these axons are insulated with myelin, which is a fatty substance. And we've talked about myelin in the past too. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's so interesting. It's almost exactly like electrical system because when the myelin is around the sheet, the electrical conduction is much faster. When the myelin is attacked and destroyed, the electrical conduction between the neurons is slowed down. Exactly. Imagine 
slowing down of processes of thinking, slowing down of the processes of uh, emotional processes, of movement. All, so depending on which external pathways are affected, that area of activity is actually slowed down. Exactly. So it's the insulation that's being attacked and damaged. So it's essentially a communication problem it is, between cells. It is, yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, the, the immune attacks are often not general. Um, they're very specific to specific regions and they come and go. Um, so for example, you know, it could be small, it could be a very quick acute attack, and then there would be a period where uh, the immune system would be quiescent mm -hmm. and healing can occur and people actually tend to feel better. And that's one of the, 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 the differentiation between relapsing remitting MS, which we will talk about, and then progressive MS, which continues to get worse and worse and Correct. worse. One of the first scientists that actually looked at this disease, you know, on slides and pathology was uh, Charcot. Charcot had, Charcot was really busy in the yeah, world of I, neuropathology. Yeah, as a neurologist, you see his name everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Charcot or C-H-A-R-C-O-T. His name is on so many diseases and so Correct. many processes. But he was yeah, the so one. He must have had some a little bit of an ego problem. I mean, <laughs> everything, everything was on. I, I get, you know, it probably put his name on like Silly streets and wherever. Right? He, yeah, they exactly. Just put their name on everything. Exactly. In any case, he was the first guy who actually originally described the pathology that is associated with um, MS. I think he was French, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. So he's. I'm going to butcher this French um, French uh, phrase, but sclerose on plaques, mm -hmm. which essentially means that plaques that are sclerosed, that are, you know, that uh, essentially have thinned out. And he saw multiple, uh, you know, these sclerosed plaques in the brains of individuals who had signs and symptoms of MS. And they were specifically found in the pons area. It was found around the ventricles and it was found in the spinal cord. So that was it. Now, the when you look at the pathology of MS, basically you see damage in the myelin sheath because of some inflammation, and this essentially causes demyelination. The inflammation itself consists of particular types of lymphocytes or cells. Mm -hmm. They're T lymphocytes, um, and there's this particular class of T lymphocytes called the CD8 T cells. Yeah, I mean, the immune system has, and we're simplifying it, but two pathways the humoral and the cellular uh, humoral, uh, immune system. The humoral is the antibodies, the IgG, IgM, Ig, uh, IgA, IgE, which is the, uh, and then you have the uh, cellular, which is the T cells, T8, T4, um, um, you know, the, the macroglobulins and, uh, cells. yeah, exactly. Uh, so the, the cellular component has particular function. And in this case, it's actually the one that's attacking the cells. Exactly. So. Um, so, so they're essentially CD8 T cells, but you also get to see some B cells and plasma cells, but mm -hmm. not much. They're much lower in numbers. And that's, that's the reason why there is just this immense inflammation or inflammatory reaction in active MS plaques. Um, initially, the axons are not damaged. The axons are stayed, you know, they're preserved earlier in the stages of the disease. But when the disease progresses, even the axons are damaged irreversibly, mm -hmm. irreversibly. And that's when you actually see shrinkage of the brain. And sclerosis and scarring. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so so that's, that's basically what happens when these lesions um, start. Now, as far as classification is concerned, that's a completely different yeah. um, you know, uh, area. 
And over the years, there have been multiple classification systems that have been uh, described, and there are specific uh, guidelines and classification systems that help neurologists and neuroscientists understand the different types and variants of multiple sclerosis. So um, all in all, there are basically three types of multiple sclerosis. There are, but, but as far as classification, you were saying there's the McDonald's classification that we use, and there are others as well. But but the main thing is time and space, isn't it? Right. So that's uh, so McDonald's criteria is for diagnosis, mm -hmm. um, and the different types of MS are essentially the clinically isolated syndrome, the One relapsing, time. remitting, and the secondary. The clinically isolated syndrome is basically, like you said, just one time. Uh, they have an inflammatory reaction and demyelination in the central nervous system. It lasts for at least 24 hours, and then that's basically mm -hmm. it. Those symptoms can be anything like Tanya had. Correct. Vision problems, vertigo, loss of sensation in the face, weakness of the arm or leg, one side of the body, sometimes both. Uh, <clears throat> they can also have difficulty with their balance. Mm -hmm. Ataxia is a word where people actually have difficulty walking and you know moving their arms and i have personally seen a lot of uh, women come in uh with ataxia only mm -hmm. yeah and they were basically told that this this was like a psychosomatic problem that it was just in their in their in their head and there was nothing wrong with them and they were sent home it's it's incredibly devastating for the patients because they know they have the symptoms but yet the doctors don't don't believe them absolutely and, it and happens so so often, often especially for women especially for women, especially for young women, because they come in, they don't know what's going on, they're emotionally distraught, and then some tired ER physician looks at them and they see that they have this wobbly walk and they're like, that doesn't look real. And without even doing any imaging, they're sent home. Exactly. I've seen that happen quite a lot. So ataxia can be a very common uh, presentation for multiple sclerosis. People also come with incontinence and bladder yes. problems, you know. They, they just either have urgency or they have complete incontinence of their bladder function. And that could be a sign of MS too. Um, if, per, if someone has a clinically isolated syndrome, their likelihood of having a second neurological symptom is very, very high. So it has to be taken seriously. Okay. And then, uh, and then there's uh, the relapsing remitting MS, which is essentially... Um, the most common yeah. disease course. If someone has MS, they're more likely to have relapsing remitting uh, MS. And basically, it's when there are new or increasing neurological symptoms as time goes by. Yeah. Um, they are also called exacerbations. Correct. Relapses. Um, and they're followed by periods of either complete recovery or partial recovery. Correct. Like Tanya. But in general, there is progressive worsening over time. Exactly. Yeah, um, definitely. And so uh, as far as numbers are concerned, 85% of patients initially are diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS. Um, and then when the disease becomes progressive, like it basically they don't have periods of any relapse, it's called secondary progressive MS. And they continuously worsen and worsen and worsen over time until disability ensues. But this course can be different for different people. So it's not for everyone. It's, you know, it just depends. Mm -hmm. And then there's some variants, right? Yes. That are very interesting. Yeah, we, they're rare though. We don't, I mean, I think after stroke mm. and, and some of the other unusual things, which is dizziness and vertigo from, you know, benign positional vertigo, those are common things. But as far as the big diseases, 
I think the most common thing is stroke and then MS and dementia in the emergency room. And you and I have seen, I mean, dozens and dozens of uh, yes. as, uh, MS patients and usually relapsing or remitting. And when you look at their record, you've seen that they've been in that hospital many, many yeah, times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're very right. Migraine can actually um, show some uh, lesions that appear like MS as well. Um, but as far as variants are concerned, we have DeVix disease. Now, DeVix disease is like the MS of the eyes only. Correct. Right? Eyes and uh, the, the spinal cord. Um, it's also called neuromyelitis optica. It's very, very rare. And it affects the optic nerves, and it has a particular antibody, aquaporin-4. Gosh, I mean, all the neurology board exams ask this question like several times. Um, then we have Bellows concentric sclerosis, which is a very aggressive form of MS. There is a Schilder's syndrome, which is myelinoclastic diffuse sclerosis, and that's found in like young boys, boys yeah. between the ages of, I think, 7 to 12 years old, and it's very aggressive. And then we have Marburg's MS, which essentially looks like uh, a, a tumor, tumor right? massive tumor. I mean, the, uh, I, I remember several of them in the last couple of years where a huge component, it looked like a, a cancer. Yeah, it looked you, like had, a, you had several uh, cases of Marburg's that you remarkable. shared with the residents. Exactly. Yeah. It looks like a glioblastoma, a big tumor in the brain. Right. It doesn't look like MS at all, but it is MS and it's pretty aggressive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So as far as epidemiology, should we talk about epidemiology yes. a little bit? All right, so, um, you know, it's uh, the most common disabling neurological disorder among young adults in the United States. Parkinson's is for the elderly. Correct. But MS is the most common disabling neurological disorder. It affects more than 2.3 million people worldwide, and it is most frequently, it's the most frequently seen demyelinating uh, disease. Not to get excited about a disease, but this is where it gets kind of interesting. As far as this distribution, it's yeah. very, very unusual. So I'll let you, yeah. It's fascinating because, you know, the, the if you ask a neurologist or a scientist about what causes MS, they'll say, I don't know. Well, at least a good one will say, I don't know. Correct. Sometimes people just come up with random answers. But there are so many fascinating associations. Correct. Like, for example, um, there is... There's a there's a factor about latitude where people actually live, especially on before the Earth. age of fifteen. Exactly, that matters whether somebody gets MS or does not get MS. For example, the prevalence in North America and Europe is way different than the prevalence in Eastern Asian countries and Sub-Saharan African countries. In North America and Europe, there's about three hundred uh, per. 100,000 people, so that's the rate, mm -hmm. 300 and 100,000 people. Guess what the rate is in Eastern Asian and Sub-Saharan African? Two Correct. for every 100,000 people. That's just insanely different. And and it, it has to do with distance from the equator. Yeah. It's not the fact that there's something going, well, it appears, I always, you have to have the humility of science, it appears that it doesn't have to do with the location itself, but the latitude from the equator. Right. And when people move from those regions to a different location, it changes. It does. It does. Like you said yeah. earlier, the risk is highest with uh, you know among people who are between the ages of 15 to 29, so before age 30 and during their teens. And the greatest increase occurs between the ages of 15 and 19. Um, and um, again, as far as um, sex differences are concerned, the risk is higher in women than, than men. 
and in Northern Europeans. And um, as far as the latitude is concerned, the numbers that were that I that, that you mentioned. So, if if someone moves from a higher latitude to a lower latitude before the age of 15, the risk of developing MS decreases. Significantly. And if they move after the age of 15, their risk does not decrease significantly. Correct. So what is that all about? I mean, we're going to talk about that. It's, it's, it's not as simple as, is this genes or is this environment or is this food or in this... It's and actually, why 15? Yeah. Why 15? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So... Um, Obviously, when you look at the literature, the risk of developing MS is determined by both genes and the environmental factor, and both of these have to be established before the age of 15. Um, they've done studies, they've looked at observational studies and migration studies. So migration studies consistently support uh, multiple sclerosis being secondary to an environmental exposure. Um, when they followed patterns of adult migrants from low-risk countries like Eastern Asia, Sub-Saharan countries, or West Indies, when they moved to Europe, or um, when they moved to, say, for example, the Nordic countries, uh, they had low risk of developing multiple sclerosis. However, their children, the children of migrants who were born in Europe, had a higher risk. Um, so migration studies also indicate that environment basically sometimes trumps the genetic patterns, and they argue strongly for prevention studies Correct. targeting uh, environmental risk factors. How much has that happened? Not much. No. We don't know about that as, as yet, but that's a potential area that scientists need to focus on, and they are. Um, all right, so as far as causes are concerned, here are some of the things that we know, like strong associations. I shouldn't say causes, but strong associations. Um, the most pertinent environmental factor is, um, there are actually three of them. So the first one is Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, especially especially if it arises after childhood and it's symptomatic. So for yeah. example... Sorry, because 90% of the population has some Epstein-Barr virus infection. Right. But it's the, it's, again, the interesting thing is, when did the, the Epstein-Barr virus ha infection happen? That seems to be the, the correlate, strong correlation. Right. So if the Epstein-Barr virus, um, you know, it, <clears throat> if, if, if they're truly positive and they have symptomatic, so EBV infection is what? It's infectious mononucleosis, Correct. right? So um, if people have it, it doubles your chances of getting MS. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as the mechanism of action is concerned, um, they don't know very well no, what no. it is. They think of processes like molecular mimicry. Which, so uh, autoimmunity seems to be, for the most part, uh, molecular mimicry, meaning there's a, and there's a um, insult on the body, a virus, a bacteria, even some foods that have certain antigens, meaning these markers, and the body recognizes it as foreign, creates antibodies against that marker. But as it, as it happens, that marker is similar to a marker on some part of your body. Yeah. So then that um, uh, uh, antibody that was created for that foreign object actually becomes an antibody against the self yeah. and gets exaggerated actually because there's a lot more of it in your body. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that's what we know about EBV. And um, there's some studies that showed that human herpes virus um, six yeah. um, 
can also increase the risk of developing MS, but we don't have strong information about that. But there is an association that they found. The second thing that increases the risk of multiple sclerosis is smoking. So smoking um, increases the risk of MS by approximately 50%. And it explains up to 40% of the increased incidence of MS in women. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty big number. Um, and they've looked at some studies. So, you know, before World War II, uh, very few women smoked. But then the numbers of the women smoking rapidly increased mm -hmm. post-war. And it kind of mirrored the increased incidence of MS as well. So there have been multiple validated studies that show that smoking increases MS. Um, and there's this really cool thing that I was reading in, in an article um, this morning. So the observation that smoking or smoked tobacco yes. and organic solvents, which people inhale, um, but not oral tobacco or snuff, right? So the, the, the smoke that goes into the lung and organic solvents is associated with MS, but not ingested, um, uh, ingested uh, tobacco. Mm -hmm. And so they're basically, this, this is leading to the hypothesis that these agents can actually cause some modification uh, via antigen presentation occurring in the lungs. Now the lungs and the lymph nodes and the thymus seem to play a very important role in this whole autoimmune picture Correct. as well. And even the genetics that we're talking about. The, uh, so in the last few decades, we've learned these techniques of called gene-wide um, uh, analysis and multiple other genetic um, uh, techniques where we take a large population of, a, of people with a particular disease and look at their genetic code and then compare it to those age-matched, sex-matched, and, and, and those that don't have the disease. And you can, with very good degree of certainty, tell which genes are involved in the particular disease. Yeah. We've done that for Alzheimer's where we found nearly, actually now nearly 50 genes that are in different degrees associated. And with, with uh, MS, we found the same thing. But most of these, those genes are immune response genes. Yeah, absolutely. So the immune response uh, genes are affected in a way where they're hypersensitive and, and altered. That's the, that's the relation between genes, environment, and, and I think when we talk about it, the, um, the, the gender differences, yeah. sex differences. Absolutely. Um, and since we're talking about genes, um, you know, about one in eight patients have a family history of MS. Mm -hmm. um, and they've actually looked at twin studies as well, concordant studies and monozygotic twins. And it's about, you know, your chances uh, of being a monozygotic twin increases to about 30%. Mm -hmm. So if one twin has MS, and if you're a monozygotic twin, you have a 30% higher risk of developing MS. I wonder if they control, because whenever people live together, they have more things in common than, than, than just genes. Well, listen to this. So here's, I'm going to actually throw a wrench now. Yeah. It's 30% only in UK and Canada, but in Southern Europe, where it's warmer, that chance is as low as 8%. Wow, okay. Okay. So, so that's the relationship between environment, gene and environment. genes, and, and, and latitude, which is maybe infections at an earlier age because it's cold. Remember, we get more colds and all of that stuff. Over and over again. So it's a, it, what we are learning that for a lot of these diseases, it's not one thing. It's, it, it's an interplay of three or four things. Exactly. exactly. Hormones, age, um, uh, genetic risk factors, and, uh, and, and, and environmental factors all, all working together uh, to conspire to create a disease. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And so the other thing, the other associ strong association is vitamin D, 
which mm-hmm. kind of explains the whole latitude hypothesis. Yes. So low vitamin D or low exposure to sun seems to increase the risk for multiple sclerosis. And uh, there have been multiple studies that essentially just validates this fact that low vitamin D, and it's not necessarily related to diet, but it has been associated to exposure to sun. I'm not sure if it actually, I've done my research and I haven't seen any low consumption of vitamin D being associated with MS at this point. And and, and this speaks to vitamin D's effect, not just on, uh, as a a relationship to MS, but other brain diseases as well. And as far as our immune response and brain diseases in general. So So, So be aware of your vitamin D levels. Absolutely. Um, And then uh, other than vitamin D, the, the one thing that came back was obesity. Um, so obesity also is an independent risk factor for um, multiple sclerosis. And the combination of some of these factors is actually exponentially increases the risk of RMS. Mm-hmm. So say, for example, if somebody's vitamin D is low and they have metabolic issues and they are suffering from obesity, their, their risk actually Add goes up. Add smoking and it significantly increases. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Those are the things that are strongly linked with higher risk of multiple sclerosis. Now, I think it's important for us to kind of touch on the things that have not been identified as risk factors, but you hear about them often. Things like um, stress, there's no association between stress and MS or traumatic events. Some people think that the you know uh, physical and psychological abuse during childhood increases MS. There's really no association. Allergies, vaccines, no association as risk factor. And um, uh, again, I think people are trying to understand better and better what the the, the interplay between genetics and environment is. Uh, one interesting study, Dean, that I was reading earlier, because this, you know, you kind of go down into these rabbit you, holes. You for always have to keep reading it uh, exactly because the latest science changes. There was a there was a paper that was published in 2019, and they said that it is likely that multiple sclerosis risk modification occurs throughout life, but it actually starts in utero. So even when the baby is in the uterus, that's when their risk for multiple sclerosis is actually wow. modified. And speaking of that. What happens during pregnancy? Exactly. But get this. So the month of birth, there's a wow. month of birth effect um, and the increased concordance in dizygotic twins, I told you about that, right? Compared to siblings shows that intrauterine environment is very important in establishing MS risk, but it's not clear whether this is due to common exposures or epigenetic mechanisms mm-hmm. or both. So... Um, there's just still a lot to learn uh, about uh, multiple sclerosis. All right, in any case, uh, moving forward. Sorry, guys. Chewy is here. Um, as far as the damage is concerned, uh, we know that it's because of inflammatory changes. Um, the immune system dysfunction causes the abnormalities in the inflammatory response. There might be some hormonal factors as well. Abnormalities in hormone like estrogen and testosterone have been linked with MS. Mm-hmm. Women with higher levels of estrogen can be at an increased risk of developing multiple sclerosis. And then nutritional deficiencies, we talked about vitamin D, um, but even omega-3 fatty acid deficiency has been associated with the increased risk. Um, and for those who have a, 
a lesion or who have a proclivity for developing multiple sclerosis based on MRI findings, if their vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acid levels are low, they can actually have higher risk of developing more uh, disability later on. Yeah, but pregnant women who have had MS, once they get pregnant, their their flare-ups become much uh, more quiescent. That's correct. They'd be yes. quiet down and they have less immune response. Yes, absolutely. So um, a pregnancy, you know, that, that has been actually studied quite extensively. Um, and there've been multiple prospective studies where they've seen that the chances of having relapsing, um, remitting MS or relapses is much lower in the first and the third trimester of pregnancy. They couldn't really find any significant association be, uh, in, in the second trimester, which I don't know why, mm. but all in all, when people get pregnant, they have less relapses. And, and that's also true for most autoimmune diseases. I can't speak for all, but, but for most of them, your immune response and your autoimmunity actually becomes quieter during the pregnancy. Exactly. There's some really interesting relationship between treatment and relapse during pregnancy. They found out that pregnant women who get treatment with disease-modifying therapy, which we will discuss yes. later, if they have had that treatment, the relapse during pregnancy is lower compared to women who don't get treatment wow. for it as well. So there are a lot of like these small little factors that um, that come through. All right, so let's talk about the different um, you know, different phases um, of MS. Um, like you said earlier, you know, so it's essentially, it's a two phase disease. In the first phase, there's inflammation in a focused area and there's some flares. And in the second phase, there is progression of the disease independent of any inflammation, uh, inflammation in focal areas. And so this has very clear implications for therapy. That's why it's very important yes. for people to talk to their doctors about, uh, treatment is concerned. And then as far as life expectancy is concerned. Yeah, I mean, life expectancy is not much lower than the general population. I mean, given the, the massive nature of this disease and the devastating um, uh, consequences for a lot of the patients, I think the life expectancy is shortened by six years or so. Right. I mean, it's, that's significant, but uh, given the uh, what the, the patients experience during their life, it's actually pretty surprising. Absolutely. All right. Okay, so um, how is multiple sclerosis diagnosed? Um, so the diagnosis of MS is based on a combination of different things, um, neurological examination, uh, imaging, specifically MRI, um, following a specific criteria called the McDonald's criteria Correct. that you were talking about um, actually is helpful uh, as well. Um, and so um, basically the diagnosis is defined by dissemination of um, these lesions in time and space, which means that- Yeah. You want, to, you want to explain that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it means that you have a lesion at one time, and then if you have another lesion or an MRI finding at another time, that actually is a diagnostic factor for MRI, uh, for MS. And this is missed in a lot of hospitals. Right. Uh, so the problem is twofold. A lot of times MS is overdiagnosed. If they see a little stroke on the MRI, they call it MS. Yes. And a lot of times where there is MS, they underdiagnose it because they don't. They forget this that oh, there was another lesion a few months ago on the MRI, and now there's a new symptom. Yeah. By definition, that's MS. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then on top of that, we also do cerebrospinal fluid um, exams, but we do that usually at the very beginning. That helps us to differentiate between patients who have had, say, for example, a stroke or some other autoimmune condition 
um, or migraines that also have some white matter lesions. And we look for things like oligoclonal bands and some immunoglobulins, and it helps us reliably uh, differentiate between the different diseases. For, for those of you who are not in the medical field, we have really interesting and useful tools now. Mm -hmm. Specific antibodies um, can tell us what diseases are, you know, uh, are the cause of the symptoms for, for MS or for the Vic syndrome yes. or for other diseases. We have particular uh, antibodies that we can actually get from the spinal fluid and that will tell us that this is most likely uh, MS in this case. Absolutely. And then we have uh, this, this particular te uh, test that Dean is absolutely crazy about called evoked potentials. I think evoked potentials was the reason why Dean actually initially got interested. Well, no, it was, it was our grandfathers, but you always were very intrigued about engineering and electronics and, and the brain. So yeah, people, neurology is electronics. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the nerves and, and how they're connected. And if you have a lesion in a certain place, you can actually tell if there's a sensory deficit in the hand and the weakness in the leg, you know where in the brainstem the lesion is. It's completely like electronics and evoke potentials either with light or with electricity or electrical st stimulus. You can you you stimulate a limb and you see how fast it goes through the different parts of the brain. Right. And that will tell you if there's a lesion in a particular part of the brain, yeah. which is remarkable. Right. So we have things like visual, auditory, and sensory evoked potentials. And we also do conduction studies um, to, to look at um, uh, you know, whether the lesion is in a particular area um, between the spinal cord and the brain. And it, it gives us very sensitive and specific information. And, and these tests are actually not just used just for MS. Mm -hmm. For a lot of neurological diseases, this can actually tell you where if the lesion is in the peripheral nervous system, in the brain stem, in the spine, sorry, in the spine, brain stem, or in the uh, thalamus or in the cortex. That level of specificity. Yeah. But but with the McDonald's criteria with MRI yeah, and those, the addition those. of a spinal tap, I think those are basically enough to tell us, you know, uh, where the disease is. Are you saying I'm I'm, I'm aging myself by <laughs> by getting excited about that these old no, techniques? I'm just saying that we don't typically always have to use no, them. No, we don't. We, don't. we only have to use them in uh, cases that are difficult to diagnose, where we're not quite certain where the lesion is or whether the lesion is MS. So. I personally rarely remember Correct. doing evoked exactly. potentials on patients. Exactly. An MRI and an neurological examination was um, would, would, would be just enough. All right. And then so other than that, we also do some blood tests, serological investigations. And basically, we do a baseline profile and we look at things like um, anti-nuclear factors, vitamin B12, thyroid function. We also rule out other autoimmune or infectious like conditions. Like lupus and, you know, uh, all these other uh, um, uh, Hashimoto's and right. others that, that could be causing this as we, well. We check for syphilis, HIV serology. That's always recommended as part of the workup. And then, you know, some of the esoteric ones like DeVix disease required anti-aquaporin-4, anti-MOG, antibody screenings and things of that nature. Um... All right, so, so that's how we diagnose. And then, Dean, you wanted to kind of touch on myths a little bit. Yeah, before we go to treat myths, to... yeah, I always want to talk about myths because they're, as it happens, because they're always, whenever there's myth, that means that somebody made it up and that means that 
they've created really cool and interesting stories around it. And that's why it's difficult to get rid of them. Uh, one of them is the bee venom myth that uh, people who have MS, uh, and that's not just for MS, but predominantly for MS, they have a, um, a much greater likelihood of curing or stopping or slowing the disease with bee venom. And there's a huge market for this. And uh, there's absolutely no data. Right. There's absolutely no evidence. They've done studies. There's absolutely no evidence that bee venom does anything. Yes, there are certain components of bee venom that, that are anti-inflammatory, but, um, but the, as far as slowing this disease centrally, absolutely no evidence so right. uh, because it sounds unusual and 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 interesting and and weird and almost like uh, you know um uh, mythical um people get get drawn by it and also the fact that people want want hope so there's and and so they get drawn sure. by it. Sure. and for this disease actually there's a lot of treatments there are really good uh, treatments uh, so that that's the way to go absolutely. that's one of the uh, major myths and the other myth is vitamins and nutrients. Mm. We said that lower vitamin D and omega-3 has been associated with MS, but the other direction is not true, that if somebody already has MS, taking more vitamin D and more omega-3 or any of the nutrients, ashwagandha or whatever uh, interesting name that you, they throw at you, none of them have been associated with reducing the risk uh, of progression of the disease or, or treatment or cure of the disease at all. Um, and then nutrition, um, as much as I would like to say whole food plant-based diet is going to be helpful, it is in many ways, I mean, as a side thing, but as far as the disease itself, there's no evidence that a particular diet, whatever the diet may be, slows down or stops the disease. There are, there are case studies, there are a lot of people, some of our friends, and we love them, uh, who say that their MS uh, were, was slowed down and we have to honor it and ex uh, accept their story. But when it comes to public health, you have to have studies. Yeah. And there are no studies that have actually shown that MS and, and, and a case control study mm -hmm. uh, has been affected by diet uh, significantly. Yeah. So so that's what, those are some of the myths. Yeah, no, I actually looked at some diet, uh, dietary studies to, um, you know, the ones that have been published. And uh, like you said, Dean, there's really no randomized control trials or long-term observational studies um, that, you know, tell us um, or, or show any um, superior diet for multiple sclerosis. There were a couple of studies, since we're talking about diet, I might as well yeah. talk about it now. Um, there was one, one study that looked at dietary patterns and they found out that higher Mediterranean diet, um, actually um, higher adherence to the Mediterranean diet predicted a lower patient reported disability which means that it there was you know it was just a patient reported disability scoring system it was not an objective uh, but it was only for the mediterranean diet and then and, there and was, that's not a, ma a reliable measure no, of outcome no the most the most robust study of diet uh, on ms was conducted in two populations the nurses health study and the nurses health study two so one and two the harvard studies uh, harvard studies and they looked at 185,000 women who had completed food frequency questionnaires every four years. Um, and there were about 480 multiple sclerosis incident cases. They looked at multiple different dietary patterns, including healthy eating index, alternate Mediterranean diet index, dietary approach to stop hypertension or the DASH diet, 
and their conclusion was that there was no evidence of any association between overall diet quality and the risk of developing multiple sclerosis among women. So, But I'm sure that as far as other phenomenon that, that happens to people who have MS, they do better. It's, uh, uh, hypothetically, it makes sense. I mean, if this is an inflammatory condition, right? Yes. And if, say, for example, if obesity increases the risk of um, uh, multiple sclerosis, then leading a very healthy life and eating a diet that has lower inflammatory, uh, rep you know, repercussions definitely could potentially help. But um, to say that diet can cure things, MS would be a little uh, off track. But remember that the distinction is between prevention and then reversal. Right. The right. same thing with Alzheimer's, the same thing here. We know that uh, taking a, a low vitamin D and low omega-3 has been associated with greater risk of uh, um, uh, MS. But then once somebody has MS, yeah. supplementation with omega-3 and vitamin D did not seem to help. True. So the same thing here. If somebody takes care of the uh, you know weight or um, all the variables that go with that, which is insulin resistance and everything else, before somebody has MS, if you follow a population, I'm sure that they would have lower risk of MS. But once somebody has MS, reversing that doesn't seem to be correlated with those things. One thing that doesn't fit in this picture, Dean, is most of the MS cases happen when women, well, I'm saying women because it happens to women most often, are very, very young. Yes. Like say, so it happens to them in, you know, during their teen years or in their 20s. Uh, the cumulative damage of diet doesn't really happen that that That's young. That's great point. Don't you think? That's great point. So to blame dietary patterns for something like that would not be appropriate. Not so much blame the other side of it. To to negate the benefits of dietary patterns at that age group would also not affect. So yeah. I think that should be studied further. Yeah, and so so there great are a lot point. of these things that just doesn't really make it. It, it can't make diet as a as a cornerstone of treatment for MS. But again, obviously, for any chronic diseases, eating a healthy diet is very important. And when you look at the MS Society, they do recommend on their website and all of the papers that have looked at dietary patterns, they say that patients should adopt a healthy eating pattern that is compatible with their culture. They should avoid processed foods, in particular, sugar and processed carbohydrates. Yes. The WHO recommends no more than 5% of their dietary calories should be consumed as sugar. Um, and just to eat a varied diet rich in unprocessed foods and mostly plants. So that's, that's their recommendation. All right, as far as treatment is concerned. So the treatment, there's been a lot of changes as far as treatment is concerned. Yeah, so there's an acute treatment when somebody comes into the emergency room as a result of an acute flare-up where there's acute inflammation. And that's usually steroids a high dose steroids in, in the form of IV solumedrol. Uh, there is um, IVIG, which is a very interesting thing. It's a, it's a bunch of hodgepodge of antibi antibodies that somebody accidentally found. So when you give it to a person in IV form, it lowers the risk of, uh, uh, or reduces the autoimmune phenomenon. And the third one is plasmapheresis, where almost like a kidney uh, uh, machine, where it clears your blood of the antibodies and then the, the symptoms go, and, and it's very effective. They all have some side effects. It's very effective in reducing the symptoms, the acute symptoms of, of MS. Mm. So those are the three major acute treatments, right? Y yeah. Usually it's, you know, one leading to the other to the other. So, Correct. you know, it, it, usually patients do very well with one gram of solumedrol, which is 
steroids for you know three to five days and then they get better but if they don't then they go to either ivh or plasmapheresis as far as so uh, so so they're they're basically um there are two types of therapies there's a, a disease modifying therapy for ms and then there is symptomatic therapy as far as disease modifying therapies are concerned these can be oral medication or injectables and uh, they definitely reduce the relapse rates. And the numbers are the injectables um, reduce the relapse rate by 29% to 34% compared with placebo in, in, in randomized control trials. And the oral medications vary uh, in their effect, but they can reduce the relapse rate uh, from 36% to 58% over two years. So they're, they're effective. Yes. Know, nothing's 100%, but they're, they're quite effective. And uh, most of the disease have been uh, disease modifying agents have been approved for relapsing, remitting, and secondary uh, progressive uh, diseases. And there are multiple different types. There are interferons. Yeah. There's sphingosine one phosphate. There's monoclonal antibodies, and they have different names: tisabri, and they have copaxone. Some of them have some serious side effects, like tisabri, and others where there's significant. And in, in people who do have side effects. It can have a profound yeah. the damage to the brain. Right. It could be an immunosuppressant or it could be a modulator of immune response. Like, for example, mitoxantrin, which is um, you know an immunomodulator, it actually causes cardiac toxicity. Correct. So, right. yeah, so they do come with serious side effects and... Uh, Potential side effects. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't use it. It just means that, you know, it should be under the supervision of a Correct. doctor and some people do well, some people don't. Uh, so um, they definitely reduce the clinical relapse and even MRI lesions. Significantly. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, of course, I mean, adverse reaction is, is a part and parcel of it. As far as duration of treatment is concerned, you know, once a person starts a disease-modifying therapy, it's essentially uh, lifelong unless there's breakthrough disease. So, Correct. you know, people actually get better or, you know, if they have adverse effects to the point where they can't really tolerate it, it's affecting their life. But there there are several observational studies have suggested that um, older individuals who get oral or injectable uh, disease-modifying therapies who have been stable for about four years, they can actually have the conversation of not not using um, disease-modifying therapies anymore. And there is actually an ongoing randomized controlled trial called DISCO-MS. DISCO? DISCO-MS, yeah. Okay. It stands for, it's, it's an acronym, but it's evaluating whether a patient can be um, discontinued. You know, they, they can discontinue their therapies who have non-active disease. So that that is going on and we'll know about it as well. And then, of course, there's symptomatic therapies, right? For depression, for anxiety, for spasticity, for pain, for sexual dysfunction and all the other relevant um, um, signs and symptoms that come with MS. Yeah, yeah, I know. So the future of this disease, um, I think, is going to be interesting. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a lot better treatments, uh, a lot more aggressive treatments when it comes to um, uh, the the specific antibodies and specific course. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of excited because we're, we've actually had more discoveries in the last five years than all the years before that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of words about lifestyle. So we, we talked about diet um, and you know, even though there's not a lot of strong evidence for diet, there is a lot of strong evidence for exercise yes. and for cognitive therapy for not only improving symptoms, but you know, uh, actually preventing relapse. So one of the sad things that happens with multiple sclerosis is um, 
diminishing cognitive reserve. Yes. MS patients are at a high risk of developing cognitive impairment and dementia later on. And there have been studies that showed that when people engage in cognitive therapy, they actually do very well. Same goes for exercise. And they've recommended for women who are experiencing symptoms of MS to exercise at least you know four to five days a week, not during their flares though, because if they start exercising during their flare-ups, it can actually um, exacerbate. exacerbate their symptoms and they don't do very well um, at all. Again, exercise to the rescue. Exercise to the rescue. And then of course, comorbid diseases. So say for example, if people have high blood pressure or diabetes, they can significantly uh, be associated with poor, um, you know, poor outcomes. So making sure that people are generally healthy helps quite a bit. So that's basically what we have as far as yeah. understanding the factors. And like, like you said, the future looks pretty bright, even though, you know, there's millions of people that are suffering, but with understanding uh, medication and therapies and understanding how it, the immune system affects our bodies, uh, understanding immunomodulation, immunosuppression, and also um, stem cell research. Exactly. Stem cell research is actually pretty strong in MS and they've, they've, there's some promise there. And also understanding what risk factors, uh, how to read the risk factors so you can institute treatments before the person never, ever develops the disease. And we're beginning to learn that with the large data analysis. Um, what prompted us to look into this is um, this, um, of course, we see MS patients all the time. Uh, even when we travel somewhere, there's always one person with a question about MS, but it's not even just about MS, it's about these autoimmune diseases, especially central brain autoimmune diseases. We'll talk about some others. And then this last week, I think, Christina Applegate, the actress. Right. So my heart broke when I saw her. We, we were both watching the Oscars. Yes. And she came in with a cane. And, you know, she's a beautiful woman. And just seeing her, the struggle that she had just walking on the carpet. And, you know, I remember watching some some of her movies in the past. And it was just heartbreaking, to be honest with you. She's a very strong person and very happy i was happy to see her show up yes but she says that just showing up takes so much effort and so uh, i actually have something that i wanted to just read you know from from her um so she has ms and she's been um you know she was on top of her game and she was living her best life when she started experiencing these weird symptoms um she tells of experiencing vague balance and mobility issues as early as during production on the first season of the show, Dean to Me, which was aired. Death which to aired, Me. Oh, Death to Me, sorry. Yeah. Death to Me, which premiered in May two, 2019. But it wasn't until the summer of 2021 and in the middle of filming when she received her diagnosis and when everything had to come to a standstill. Horrible timing because it was a pandemic. But, but she was so strong that uh, when the producer said, let's stop this whole thing, because of her friends who were in the show yeah. and because of the rest of the cast, yeah. she said, I'm not gonna stop. I'm, no matter what it takes, I'm going to finish the season for them. Amazing, amazing. So she started her treatment um, and uh, at the time there was a sense of, well, let's, let's get her some medication and she can feel better, but there is no better, she says. Um, it was good for me. I needed to process my loss in my life, my loss of that part of me. So I needed that time. And they shut down for about five months as she began the treatment. She also noted that after that time, it wasn't like she came on the other side and saying, you know, I'm totally fine. Um, 
There was no acceptance. She says, I'm never going to accept this. I am pissed. At the time, Netflix and the team even considered shutting the show down indefinitely, but she, out of loyalty to the crew and the producers, yeah, this one, and yeah. she restarted it again. So, it's, it's remarkable. She's, she's fighting it. She's, uh, she's active. Yeah. She's exercising as much as she can, uh, but she's also overwhelmed. And, and a lot of times the medical field, especially in, in the smaller clinics where they don't have specialists that recognize MS, they they make the patients feel as though they're they're these are not real symptoms, especially at the beginning of the disease, um, and that's why it's important to go to a um, specialty hospital that has neurologists that specialize in MS because that period of time, how quickly it's diagnosed, how quickly it's treated, maybe even being in some studies is is important. It's yeah. really important. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I as as a uh, as a neurology resident, mm -hmm. I remember women coming with these, you know, vague symptoms and we would do an MRI and they would uh, have MS and they would be just, you know, talking to some random doctor. I'm not, I'm not putting doctors down. It's just a very, you know, strange condition and there are very specific criteria that needs to, to be looked at and to be diagnosed. So, uh, so I guess the lesson is there's hope. Um, that uh, women or men also who uh, experience vague neurological symptoms should get evaluated by a neurologist and should continue to follow up with them so that this doesn't get missed. Um, and that uh, there's a lot of great things happening on the horizon as far as treatment is concerned. And for, for our audience here in Neuro Academy, it's important for them to know about autoimmune diseases. MS is fairly common, 2.3 million people. And um, not to overread it, but if you have certain symptoms, find a specialist that uh, that that knows the disease and and that can help uh, diagnose it properly. Because then you can start in the path of healing and treatment early on. Um, and and uh, we'll talk about some of the other diseases. But identifying, recognizing, treating, preventing is that's the reason we're here. So I hope this was helpful. This is one of the major big diseases out there. Absolutely. This was a highly requested topic. I'm really glad that we went through it and we would be happy to answer any questions that you guys have on the Neuro Academy platform later on to let us know. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for joining us. <music>